Well, as our society moves away from its Christian roots, we are wrestling with what exactly it is we should do with forgiveness. It used to be that forgiveness was enshrined as one of the most noble virtues someone could exhibit. So, for example, in the civil rights movement, under the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, forgiveness was a centerpiece of the movement's ethos and strategy. So in some of the notes that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, had written for a sermon that he delivered on the parable of the prodigal son, uh, he reflected in this way on forgiveness. He said, here then is the Christian weapon against social evil. We are to go out with the spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. Of course, we don't think this is practical, but this is the solution of the race problem. His approach greatly informed the American response to injustice and evil. So in 2007, when an outsider murdered a group of Amish schoolchildren and then took his own life, the grieving community announced that they forgave the man and they took up a collection for his widow and his children. In 2015, a racist gunman killed nine African-American people at a church Bible study and the families of the victims stood up in court and addressed him via video cameras and told him that they forgave him and promised to pray for him. The daughter of a 70-year-old victim of the shooter said to him, you took something very precious from me, but I forgive you. It hurts me. You hurt a lot of people, but may God forgive you. But interestingly enough, people have begun to push back on the idea that we ought to forgive those who wrong us. What about justice, goes the thinking. Doesn't forgiveness just encourage and strengthen the hand of the wrongdoer. So not long after the Charleston church shooting, the Washington Post published an editorial in response, arguing that people should stop responding to violence with forgiveness, and that asking victims to forgive their persecutors simply victimized them a second time. See, there's a tension between the impulse to forgive and our innate need for justice. In a similar way, most of the reflections on the topic that emerged in the wake of the Me Too movement, as people began to wonder, well, if someone in the past has done something terrible, what does that mean for them in the present? What if they feel badly about it? What if they ask for forgiveness? Can we, can we move forward together, or are people permanently canceled? Most of the reflections, at least in the sort of popular media, concluded that forgiveness was important for, for you as an individual so that you could move past bitterness and hate. It gave you a certain emotional release, but it was in no way necessary for any larger purpose. So Alan Jacobs, who is a professor at Baylor University and a thoughtful Christian, he wrote in a blog post about the consequences of our drift towards a more secular explanation for our lives. Uh, Professor Jacob wrote this. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. 
The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. Well, it strikes me that this cultural shift represents an opportunity for us as a church. The call to be Jesus' people in this world is an invitation to live and to love differently. As we, as a church family, are shaped by the gospel message, right, the proclamation of a costly forgiveness purchased by the death of Christ for sinners, I think we find ourselves called to live as a community of forgiveness, and not just for the sake of our own personal mental hygiene, but because we've been transformed and captivated by a love that has forgiveness at its root. And so we turn this morning to a portion of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the mid-50s AD. So if you've been here for the past few weeks as we've been thinking about the letter we call 2 Corinthians, Paul's relationship with this ancient church was complicated. He had arrived in the city of Corinth probably in about 51 AD, so roughly 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He spent some time there. Uh, supporting himself by making tents, preaching the good news about Jesus, and he formed a church with the new believers. But somewhere in 52 AD or so, he went back to Ephesus, and while he was there, his relationship with this church uh, took a turn for the worse. Paul wrote them a letter addressing some concerns about the church, giving them some instructions. The church wrote back, asking Paul questions, pushing back on some of his teaching. So Paul wrote yet again. This is the letter that we have in the New Testament that we call 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he addressed some serious theological and moral issues that had cropped up in the church. After that letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul sent his protege, Timothy, to Corinth to visit the church. And Timothy discovered a church that was in chaos. People were openly openly questioning Paul's leadership and teaching. So Timothy went back to Ephesus. He gave Paul this negative report about the church, and Paul went and visited Corinth himself. As we saw last week, that visit was one that he described as painful, and Paul actually cut the visit short. He left rather than staying and provoking further conflict. Paul went back to Ephesus. He wrote a letter. Last week in the passage we saw, he called it a tearful letter, calling members of the church to repentance. And it seems that on the whole, this tearful letter was well received. Most of the church repented of their opposition to Paul, and things seemed to be moving forward on a more solid footing. The apostle then wrote a fourth letter, the one that we call 2 Corinthians, the one that we're reading this morning. And the goal of this letter is to encourage and strengthen that majority of the church that had turned back, and also to call the sort of holdout minority that was still opposing Paul to repentance. So it's in that context that we read our passage for this morning, where Paul calls on the church to forgive a man who had wronged him. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we think about these verses uh, is examine them in light of Paul's words, examine two ideas in particular. First, let's see what Paul says about the purpose 
of punishment. And then second, let's look at what he says about the need for forgiveness. So first, the purpose of punishment. Look there in verses 5 to 7 of 2 Corinthians 2. Paul writes, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And in verse 8, he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So here Paul brings up the case of someone who had done wrong. If you remember last week when we ended in verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul was talking about his desire not to cause more pain to the church. And so here in verse 5, he begins by talking about any, if anyone has caused pain. Right? It's clear he's not raising a hypothetical possibility. Right? He knows and they know that someone had done exactly that. Right? This is Paul's way of presenting the issue. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he doesn't name the individual. Uh, perhaps he's trying to emphasize his larger point that the matter has been forgiven. He doesn't want to single this person out by name. But it, it seems like he's trying to sort of throw cold water on the issue rather than inflame it. So he, he's speaking sort of obliquely here. Now, if anyone has caused pain. But he says it's not just an issue for him. He says he, he caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, to the whole church. Right? Paul doesn't want to make too big a deal out of this. He says he doesn't want to put it too severely. That the, the words that Paul uses there in Greek have the sense of, of not wanting to overburden someone. We might say, like, not to beat a dead horse. Right? But he does understand that the Corinthians need to own the fact that whatever this pain was that was caused to Paul, it, it wasn't just caused to him. Right? He says, he's caused it not to me, but to, to all of you. Right? Paul's not saying that that this man didn't cause him any pain, but he's saying comparatively, the, the bigger loss has been experienced by the whole church community. So what's going on? What's Paul talking about here? Well, he doesn't tell us exactly. He knows the Corinthians know what he's talking about, and he's writing primarily for their eyes, not ours, and so he doesn't take a lot of time explaining things that they already know. Right? So if I wrote you a letter uh, telling you about my uh, trip with my wife, I probably wouldn't say, uh, I went on a trip with my wife, whose name is Karen, right? I'd assume you knew that about me, right? So I, in the same way, Paul assumes that the church knows uh, who it is that they're talking about, and so he doesn't really take a lot of time uh, to explain. Based on what we know about the church at Corinth, and really what we read about in the rest of this letter, I think we can sort of put the pieces together and figure out what Paul's talking about. Traditionally, interpreters have suggested that this man that Paul's talking about in verse 5, one who has caused pain, might be the same person that Paul mentioned back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember there, Paul addressed the issue with the church of a man who was living in gross sexual immorality, right? sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul told the church to put this man outside the congregation. And so, uh, traditionally, commentators and interpreters have understood that, that this is a, a sort of proof that that man actually came back and repented later, but it doesn't really seem to fit the details very well. Right? It doesn't fit the timeline that we get, get later in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's not really clear how this, that man's actions would have been understood to be sin against Paul specifically. Instead, it seems that someone in the church had engaged in slander against Paul, sort of speaking against him and his ministry at Corinth. 
And while most of the church had initially followed upon that course, as I mentioned, they repented when Paul wrote the tearful letter. And so they had confronted and punished the person who had been sort of the ringleader of the opposition to Paul. Uh, because he had not only troubled the apostle, he had really troubled the whole church. It's most likely that the punishment that had been sort of executed on this man was being excluded from the church community, barring him from the Lord's table, putting him outside the church. Right? And so Paul is addressing the circumstances of this man, this man who had opposed him and in, by doing so had really hurt the whole church. The church had responded by putting him out of uh, membership in the congregation. And so, so now Paul's calling them to forgiveness. Now, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, this, this practice that it seems that the Corinthians had engaged in here, what we call church discipline, might sound really strange to you. What, what do you mean they, they kicked him out of the church? How can a church kick someone out? Isn't the church supposed to be, be all about love? Isn't it about acceptance? Right? Isn't removing someone from a church, isn't that harsh and judgmental? But actually, Jesus told his disciples to do exactly that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. And the Apostle Paul mentions it several times. Right? And so if you think about it, there's a few things to notice about this idea that a church might remove someone from its membership. It's actually not that strange if you think about it. Right? Let's say that you join a club or a professional society, or, or some kind of organization, right? Unless that, unless that group has absolutely no important purpose, there are probably going to be standards of behavior that it expects from its members. So if you're a member of a certain political advocacy group, but you constantly argue for and support the opposite position, at some point you'll probably be asked to leave. If you're enrolled in a university and fail to meet certain academic expectations, you'll be removed from the student body. Right? You get the point. I think we, we see this in our normal lives all the time. It's important to note churches are, are called on to, to exercise this same kind of care and discipline, but, but only on its own members. So if you're not a part of the church, then what you do is simply between you and God. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you voluntarily commit to, to membership in this community, then we will love you enough to confront you should you begin to act in a way that contradicts your profession of faith in Jesus. Right? It's not good for the church to allow sin to go unaddressed. It's not good for the reputation of Christ, for his people who claim to be his followers to, to run around living in ways that are inconsistent with that profession. It's not good for the individual in question to allow them to simply continue down a path to spiritual disaster. And so the church is called upon to exercise some discipline, to actually sometimes, rarely, but sometimes put someone outside its membership because of the way they're living. And notice also the, the purpose of this discipline. The church takes action to remove someone in hopes that that will lead to their ultimate restoration and repentance. So there in verses 6 to 7, Paul urges the church to forgive the one who has caused the pain, to forgive the one that they've put outside their community. He says there that he wants, he wants them to comfort him, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. There in verse 8, he wants them to reaffirm, to make crystal clear to this man, not their, not their disdain, not their disapproval, but he says there in verse 8, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
You see, church discipline is meant to be an act of love. It's not meant to harm or humiliate or ostracize, but it's meant as a sort of wake-up call. It's a summons to repentance. Right? The, whole, the hope and the end goal is not that the person will be forever kept at arm's length outside the community, but that they might be brought back into the congregation. Third, also notice here that the, the group that exercised this judgment on the man, there in verse 6, is, is referred to as the majority. Paul says the punishment by the majority is enough. You see, in Matthew 18, Jesus said that if your brother sins against you, you should go to him. And if he, if he repents, well, then you've won your brother. And if he won't, then you should take another person or two with you to try and plead with him. If you won't listen to them, Jesus says, you have to take it to the church. And he says, if he won't listen to the whole church calling him to repentance, Jesus says, you need to treat him like a pagan. Treat him like he's an outsider, like he's not really a follower of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul was frustrated that the church hadn't done something about a man who was living in gross immorality. And now Paul talks about the punishment inflicted by the majority. That seems to indicate that there was a minority in the church that wasn't on board with with disciplining this man, but, but that the church members had some way of making their choice known so that it was clear that most of them did agree with this decision. And so, friends, this is why we understand that each local congregation has the responsibility to to watch over one another in brotherly love, as we say in our church covenant. This responsibility to to discipline members who aren't uh, living in ways that are consistent with their profession of faith, it's not something that we can outsource as a church. It's not something that you can outsource to the leadership. It's not something that we can outsource to some outside body. Uh, Paul understands that it's the decision of the majority here Uh, that inflicts this punishment. So that's our first point, the purpose of punishment. In rare circumstances, the church is called upon to remove someone from membership, but the purpose is not to destroy them, not to hurt them, but in love to call them to repentance and restoration. And that brings us then to our second point, which is the need for forgiveness. Look at what Paul writes there, beginning in verse 9. He says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you, And know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul writes there in verse 9 that he wrote the previous letter, the one we call the tearful letter, in order to test their obedience. Remember, Paul's no ordinary guy, right? As he writes at the very opening of this letter, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so to reject him is to reject his message. And that's a message that he was sent by Jesus to proclaim. And so he wrote them this tearful letter, telling them to put this slanderous opponent out of the church if he wouldn't repent. And they had done it. They had obeyed by removing this man. But now that this man has repented, Paul wants them to obey yet again, not by putting him out, but this time by restoring him. Right? They had shown the courage necessary to discipline this man. Now they needed to show the love necessary to forgive him. There in verse 10, Paul affirms he's with the church 
in this act of forgiveness. Paul says, if you forgive him, I forgive him too. And Paul explains his twin motivations in this matter. He's not been animated by a personal vendetta or a desire to vindicate himself, but rather he says there in verse 10 that he's concerned with the church's well-being. He says, it's, it's for your sake that I've forgiven. There in verse 10, if I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake. Right? That's the first motivation. Paul's concerned with the well-being of the church. The second motivation there is at the end of verse 10. He says, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Right? Even though Paul is an apostle, right? even though he has the authority to call these Corinthian believers to obedience, he knows that he himself is a man under authority. He knows that every action is undertaken that it's with the knowledge that it's done in the presence of the Lord Jesus. All of Paul's motivations, his words, his actions, he knows they're all subject to the evaluation of Christ. And so he lives carefully in light of that reality. And friends, it strikes me that we don't have Paul's position. And we don't have Paul's authority. So you're not an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in the way that Paul was. Right? If you have questions about that, see me after the service. But I do think these twin concerns that marked Paul's ministry can serve as, as tracks for us, tracks that allow our lives and our ministries to run in the right direction. So again, whether you have an office in the church, whether you serve as an elder or deacon, whether you have some position of, of leadership or service, or whatever ways that you're called upon to care for this church body, or even in your role outside the church as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, I think these are pretty good guidelines for your actions. Do what you do for the sake of the people that you're serving. Not for selfish gain, not because of vain ambition. And do all that you do fully aware that you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus, who not only judges, but who also richly rewards his people for their faithful service. Those twin motivations, the, the good of the church, and an awareness of the presence of Christ, that explains why Paul wants the church to forgive. You see, forgiveness is good for the church. It's good for their sake. Right? Just think about what a church is supposed to be. It's a collection of people from all walks of life who have turned from their sins and put their trust in Jesus, who are filled with his Holy Spirit and given the love of Christ for one another. Right? And so the authors of Scripture use imagery to try and capture what a, what a church is. They, they use images like a, the church is a temple, right, being built up with living stones. They use the image of, of a body made up of, of all sorts of different members. They use the image of a field or a family, to picture what our relationships in the church are meant to be like. Right? There is a genuine spiritual interconnectedness between people in a church. And that interconnectedness is meant to manifest itself in great love for one another. In beautiful harmony in our relationships. Right? You can see this on almost every page of the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 to the church. He says, having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's writing this to a church. Love one another, he says, from a pure heart earnestly. Paul tells the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. He says to the church at Philippi, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Right, we could keep going. The picture is so clear. The church is meant to be a community of love and acceptance and care. In that sense, it's meant to be something like an outpost of heaven here on earth. It's meant to be a foretaste of what life will be like in eternity when God makes all things new, when our hearts are finally purified. That's what's good for the church That's Paul's concern and his motivation for all that he's written to them. He wants the church to be what they ought to be. But there is one significant problem. And that is other people. Right? This is a fallen world. And so even in the church, people will not be lovable and lovely all the time. We will sin against one another. We will wrong one another. We will misunderstand each other. We will see important things differently. We will miscommunicate. We will offend. We will hurt. We'll be foolish and selfish and wrongheaded at times. In short, unless, unless we're content to simply forever keep one another at arm's length so that we never really get to know each other, we never really get in close enough to offend... Unless we do that, we are going to cause pain to one another. That's what most of the letter of 2 Corinthians has been about to this point, right? So as a result, we're going to need to forgive one another. Right? Forgiveness is a way of restoring things to how they were meant to be. Right? When we forgive, we are giving up our right to hold someone's sin against them. We're agreeing that we're not going to seek vengeance or payback. Sin introduces an offense into the community. Left unaddressed, that offense will become infected. It will spread throughout the body. But forgiveness comes along and it cleans out the wound. It cleanses out the sin. It it stops its spread. It, It protects the health of the body. So Paul wants the church to forgive this man who caused so much pain. There in verse 10, he says, for their sake, so that this man won't be crushed by grief, so that the love and the unity and the care of the church can be reaffirmed. There's actually another problem that Paul mentions here. There in verse 11, Paul says something a bit unexpected. He says that the church needs to forgive. He says there in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs. See, Satan hates the church because it belongs to Jesus. 
And so he seeks to destroy its unity, to sow unforgiveness in the body. All right, you can see how easy his job is, right? Someone sins against you. They cause you pain. They say something. Or maybe they fail to say something. You wind up on opposite sides of an issue. And so you hold a grudge. You decide you're not going to trust that person anymore, but you're going to keep them at a distance. Maybe you talk to your friends about it. Maybe they talk to their friends about it. And, and you all decide you don't really actually like each other all that much, and you actually kind of wish they weren't part of the same church. And before long, when that dynamic gets played out at all sorts of diagonals and cross-relationships in a congregation, the love and the grace and the care that's meant to characterize the people of Jesus has been eroded, and, and we really wind up looking just like the world around us. See, Paul says when we fail to forgive one another, we are being outwitted by the evil one. We are executing his game plan. So Paul brings the Corinthians into this awareness of diabolical thinking, saying, look, we're not ignorant of his designs, and so we're called to pursue the well-being of the church through forgiveness. But that's not the only reason we're called to forgive. We also forgive for the sake of Christ, because as Paul says there in verse 10, we're, we're aware that we live our lives in his presence. We forgive because forgiveness is consistent with the love of Jesus. See, forgiveness is right at the heart of the Christian message. On our own, we are not right with God. We were created for a purpose, to know God, to love him, to enjoy him. But we've all gone our own way. We've turned our back on him, happily taking the things that he gives to us, but with no love for him, no delight in him, no desire to obey his instructions. Right? And when you look at the world around us, nothing could be more obvious than the fact of sin. Right? You see it in, in all of the ways that God's creation has been fractured. War, poverty, the devastation of the environment, violence, hatred, widespread confusion about right and wrong, isolation, loneliness, disregard for human life, racism, sexism, greed, corruption, abuse, addiction. Right? Sin is not hard to spot in the world around us. But listen, this is important. Sin isn't just out there. It's easy to look at the world around us and see the presence of sin. It's easy to look at people you don't like and don't agree with and see the evil. But friends, that's not enough. That's not close to the whole story. You have to be honest enough. You have to be courageous enough to acknowledge that you are part of the problem, that you have hurt others, that you've failed to do the good that you could do, that you've been selfish and faithless and cowardly. And maybe you haven't inflicted as much pain as others have. Maybe you can easily point to and identify people who are more wicked than you are. But if you're honest, you've done enough damage with the opportunities you've had. You see, sin isn't just out there. It's not just a matter of systems and governments. It's, it's deep in each and every one of us. So the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent eight years in a Soviet gulag. His crime was criticizing Joseph Stalin in a private letter. And he spent eight years in the, the gulag system. And after eight years of seeing humanity at its worst, he concluded this. 
He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. As I say, the problem may indeed be out there, but, but first it's in here. The evil isn't simply something in the world around us, it's something in us as well. The Christian message begins with that foundational insight that we are all sick with sin, that we are estranged from God, that we are under his just judgment. We are disqualified from life in his perfect and holy presence. Essentially, think about it, if God let us into heaven, we'd mess everything up, right? Just look at what you've done with your own life. Look at what we've done with this world. The Christian message starts there, but that's only the beginning because in his great love for you, God wasn't content to leave things like that. But instead, he came after us. He came to rescue us. That's the message of Christmas, that God has come to save us. The Son of God took on human flesh and lived as one of us, just without the sin He loved God perfectly. He loved his fellow man perfectly. So much so that he gave up his life for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute for us. And there on the cross, he didn't just die an excruciating and humiliating death, but he actually took on himself the judgment that his people deserve. He bore our penalty the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion. He took the punishment for our sins. You see, at the outset, we said that our world is struggling with a tension between forgiveness and justice. If we just forgive people, well, what about justice? Won't people just be encouraged to to keep on doing their terrible things? Well, it's at the cross of Christ that, that mercy and justice, that forgiveness and the demands of justice are reconciled. Jesus died to to pay the price that we owed so that we could experience mercy and forgiveness. He didn't just die, but he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now Jesus offers forgiveness to anyone who will turn from their sin and turn to him in faith. He offers us a clean heart and the promise of eternal life with him in a world made new. It's a promise for anyone who will look at the evil in their own heart with revulsion and turn from it and turn to him in simple trust and faith. Friends, the beauty of the Christian message is that there there is no program of self-improvement here. There is no plan for self-atonement. Because again, we're the problem, not the solution. Right, the world around us tells us that our problems are outside of ourselves, right, the ways we've been mistreated and misunderstood, and that the solution is inside me, right, if I just learn to be more true to who I really am. But friends, the truth is just the opposite. Yes, there are problems out there, but my greatest problem is me. And so I need a solution from outside me. That's exactly what God has given us in Jesus. So friend, if you've not turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you have an open invitation this morning. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, God wants you to come to him in faith. You can do that today. 
You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to get your life together. Simply come to Jesus in faith. If you have questions about what that means, we would love to talk to you more about it. I'd encourage you to talk to the person who invited you this morning. You can talk to anyone that you've seen up here. You can talk to me after the service. We'd be delighted to tell you more about what it means to experience forgiveness and new life in Jesus. And friends, hopefully you can see what this means for us as a church. Paul wants the Corinthians to forgive this man who caused him and them such pain. He wants them to do it for their sake. And he says, in the presence of Christ. They had put him out of membership in their church in service to this kind of love. They wanted him to repent. They wanted to forgive him. They wanted him to be restored to their midst, right? That's how they're living out the gospel, right? And that's significant because we live out our life as a church in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, right? Just as Paul there in verse 10 can say that he forgives in the presence of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we live out our entire church life together in the presence of the Lord. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to be a community of people who have experienced this kind of costly forgiveness? What does it mean to be a church full of people who acknowledge that we are not good in and of ourselves, but that the only way we could be forgiven for our sins was for Jesus to die in our place? Well, at the very least, it has to mean that we're quick to forgive one another, right? Right. If God doesn't hold the sin of your brother or sister against them, but if he in love sent Jesus to die so that they could be forgiven, well, then what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus if it doesn't mean that you're quick to forgive them as well? See, brothers and sisters, Paul tells the church at Corinth to forgive this man, to affirm their love for him. Right? And it's not just a suggestion. It's not just a noble idea. He's, he's putting his finger on the heart of what the church is and what the church does. Right? We don't just believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We don't just proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We actually live out the gospel in our interactions with one another. Right, the church is meant to be a community of people whose lives and minds and hearts have been shaped by this incredible news of God's great forgiving love for sinners in Christ. And so we forgive one another, even when there's significant pain involved. Right, we resist the temptation to scratch and inflame the itch of resentment and bitterness. We live out our lives towards one another with kindness with the mercy and the grace that we've received from Jesus. Right? The logic is inescapable. This is what John reflected on in his first letter. He says to the church, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so what should we do as a result? John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Right? How do we know the love of God? Jesus laid down his life for us. How does that love change us? Well, now we're quick to lay down our lives for one another. A little bit later in that same letter, John writes this. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another.
Right? How do we know the love of God? He sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. He loved us, John says, when we didn't love him. He sent his son to die for our sins. So how do we live that out together as a church? We do it by loving one another. Brothers and sisters, can you see how beautiful this is? That God has loved us in this way? And, and that he's called us to a life not of, not of painful drudgery, not of joyless service, but that what God wants for you and from you is love and forgiveness. He wants, he wants to so transform you with his love that mercy and grace and kindness just pours out of you towards his people. That he wants us to live out our Christian lives in a church, in a family, in a community, shaped by mercy and grace. Now, brothers and sisters, can you see how kind God is to call us to live this way? Can you see how it exalts the risen Lord Jesus and it honors him when we're quick to forgive one another our offenses? It's no wonder that Satan has designs and schemes aimed at destroying this kind of love. So it's good that the Lord has given us a weekly way of expressing that love and unity that we have as his people in light of his death for us. Right In the Lord's Supper, which we come to celebrate now, we have visible reminders of Jesus' love. Right, The bread represents his body broken for us at the cross. The cup of wine represents his blood shed for us so that we might be forgiven. And friends, it's significant that we come to the table. We come to celebrate and to remember Jesus' death. We come to have fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus at his table. And listen, we don't come alone. We come together. We come as a church family. We come with one another as brothers and sisters who have experienced forgiveness and who have experienced grace through the cross. We come to the table, to a family meal, to live out the truth that's on display. We do it by coming in love and forgiveness for one another. And so let's pray, and let's come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your love. You've loved us not in response to our goodness, not in response to our love, but despite us. You sent your Son to live a life of perfect obedience and to die the, the death that we deserve for our sins. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us more and more into your own image, that the love and the forgiveness and the grace and mercy that we've received would transform us, and that you would make us increasingly into a, a family, into a community that's marked by this kind of love. And we pray these things for our joy and for your glory. Amen.